My name is Jeff. I'm the campus pastor uh, over our Yorkson campus. And uh, yes, yay for Yorkson. Hey, what are you doing here this morning if you're from there? But no, just joking. Um, we love, uh, yeah, all three locations. We see God working. I get a front row seat to see how God is working at Yorkson. Um, one of those examples of how he's working is in my new friend, um, Bruce. About a month ago, um, a 96-year-old lady passed away, and I was able to lead a community memorial for her. Her name is Fern, and Bruce is her 91-year-old husband. Um, we met before the service, and I got to know her a little bit and prepared the service with him. And then it was about three days afterwards that he called me and said, Jeff, we need to meet for coffee. And the first thing I thought is, I'm in trouble. I did something wrong, and I messed up somehow. But as Bruce uh, bought me a drink at Starbucks, I thought, okay, this is good, this is good. Um, Bruce told me that he had been married for 66 years to Fern. And he said, Jeff, I went to church a little bit as a kid, but he said, I'll be honest, in the 66 years we've been married, we haven't gone to church. But he said, he, said, he then said to me, he looked me in the eye, he goes, Jeff, I think it's time that I come back to church. And I was just like, oh, this is so great. Bruce wants to figure out who Jesus is and he's now come for three weeks in a row, and I love this. Um, he's becoming part of the Yorkson community, and God is working in Bruce's life, and I love to see it. At the same time, I miss you guys. Uh, those who I've known um, over the years, it's this attention of seeing uh, and being at another place and also missing you all here. Um, wherever you are on your faith journey today, whatever has brought you here um, on July 16th, 2023, a nice summer morning, you are welcome here. And I believe that God wants to speak to us through the book of Luke, chapter 15. We've been going through the book of Luke for a few years now, on and off, through a different series, but this has been kind of our staple that we've gone to. And for the last two weeks, this is week number three, we've camped out on Luke 15. Um, the first two weeks ago, Pastor Matthew spoke about the, the love of God through Matthew 15, or Luke 15. And then last week, uh, some of you may have seen balls floating around in here in Camp Sunday with songs and dances. It was a little bit different, but we're into Luke 15 in the last part of this. Now, I want to just set the scene for us fairly briefly so that we can understand what is going on and we don't just kind of pick up in one of the verses and try to assume. This is what's going on here. Jesus is talking to people and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are calling Jesus out. They're angry at Jesus. And their anger isn't because Jesus is unholy, but because Jesus is hanging out with what they term to be unholy people. Listen to verses 1 and 2. This is how Luke 15 starts. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. You can just imagine how they say this. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Why does he say eats with them? We're going to get to that in just a moment. But understand again here, Jesus is being called out and he's being found guilty by association. You see, in this time, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they termed themselves holy and they said it is unholy to even hang out with anyone unholy because you then become unholy. So there was no potlucks with unholy people. There was no games nights with unholy people. There was no hanging out at recess with kids with unholy people. Nothing. They didn't associate with them because they wanted to continue to be holy towards God. And they said, if I invite unholiness into my life by another person, then I am being unholy towards God. 
kind of crazy rationale, but this is what they believed. They generally wanted to do right. But listen to this. Jesus not only welcomes them in, but what does he do? Like I said, he eats with them. And this is what they're so astounded by. Understand this, and this is crucial for the rest of the passage, that eating with someone was never casual. We do this all the time, right? It's like, hey, want to grab coffee? Sure, let's do lunch, whatever. It's kind of casual. But in this time, in this culture that Jesus is sharing this parable, eating with someone was never casual. It always signified complete acceptance of that individual. Hold on to that. Bookmark that in your, in your brain for a, a little bit because I'm going to come back to that. Eating signified complete acceptance of that individual. And because Jesus is hanging out and eating with what they termed unholy people, they're judging Jesus for it. That's our scene. And so for the rest of Luke 15, what Jesus continues to do then is he gives three parables, not aimed at what was lost and found, because he talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then as we're getting to today, the lost sons, but rather um, whose is lost. In other words, the story is really about the shepherd who has lost the sheep. The story is really about the woman who has lost the coin. And this story here is about the father who has lost his sons. Last week, Pastor Matthew talked about the older son, which is interesting because I know I love his vulnerability. He said, I'm the older son. But he was really excited for me to preach on the younger son here. So I don't know what that says about me, but uh, I'll leave that for him and I to talk about later. I don't know. But it says here this. It says, after, again, after Jesus talked about these parables, he then continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Give me my fair share of the estate. In this culture, the older son, the firstborn, would always get more than the younger. So in this case, uh, he would get two-thirds. The younger son would get one-third. But listen to this here. This is outrageous for a son to come up and say, give me my fair share of the estate. Now, it was rightful for him to ask of this, but there's one caveat. The father has to pass away first. It's called an inheritance. We still have this today. When our parents pass away, you know, maybe there'll be something there for us that they've passed on to us, maybe. But it's an like inheritance. But again, it's inhinged upon the parents, in this case, the father passing away. He hasn't passed away, and from what we can understand in the story, he's very much in good health still. And so the Pharisees, to hear this story that Jesus has started out, would have been shocked. They would have been dismayed because in this culture, you never, ever disrespected your parents. You didn't even say a bad word about them, never mind to them. But essentially, what is taking place here is in the son asking for his share of the estate, he's basically saying to his dad, I want you to die. Can you imagine how disrespectful that would have been? Dad, it's kind of, it would be really good if you died about now so that I could have my share of the estate. But since you are still living, I want it anyway. I really appreciate what Daryl Johnson says in his commentary on this passage. He says, here we find out the nature of sin. Sin is not breaking the rules, although that's involved. Sin is breaking a relationship. To this point, the son has not broken any rules, but he has broken the father's heart. You see, the son just wants to walk away and write his own story. And he wants to be the main character in that. He is tired 
of living in the story of his family and perhaps living in the shadow of his older son or older, older brother, sorry, or his father. He wants to run his own life. And I think it's fitting for us to pause here and ask a question. The question, I think, that we have to look at this and say, are you, we don't ask ourselves, are you a younger son? And especially if we look at the older or younger, I think our tendency is to say, are we more like the older son or are we more like the younger son? But I think the truth is, is as we look at this, the question would be, where is the younger son in us? Where is this rebellious spirit in us that wants to go our own way? And where do we want to be the center of our own story? You see, holiness isn't just this instantaneous or overnight effect where like, hey, now I'm living this holy life and I never mess up and I'm just going to ride this out until I get to heaven. Holiness is a tension in our life between wanting to honor God and do what he wants for us, but also of writing our own story, isn't it? We always have this tension in our lives. Where does it show itself? It can be in so many different ways. Maybe in how we spend our money. I'm the author of the money that I have earned and made, right? Maybe it's in our schedules, that we make our schedules. And for some of us, we make them so crazy that even we can barely hang on to them. Maybe it's in a relationship that we have that we know is not healthy for us. Or in a cycle of bitterness or unforgiveness that we just don't want to break out of. We want to be there. It's our own story. And I know this is breaking God's heart, but I don't really care. And I think in all of this, in Luke 15, this is a microcosm of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus has brought to all people. And you may say, well, Jeff, this doesn't sound like very good news. But it's, and it's not, and that's exactly the point. The good news of the gospel has to start with the bad news. And the bad news is that we just haven't broken a few rules or a few of the Ten Commandments here in our day, wherever, but that we have walked away from a relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. It says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. All of us. And notice the reaction here, though, of the father. It says, the father freaked out, threw a tantrum, and he yelled at his son. Or maybe the father turned away and disowned his son. It's kind of like, talk to the hand, son. You're no longer part of me, and I, you, you're out of here. You know, it's just like, a, there's a mafia. It's like, you're no longer part of the family. I don't do that very well at all, but it's like, you can just understand, there's, there's a breakage here. You're no longer part of things. You're like, please don't do that again, Jeff, and I won't. Um, <laughs> but do understand what happens here. It says, so he divided his property between them. It's almost like this nonchalant, unemotional time when God, sorry, when the, when the father here says, you want a third of the estate, son? Done. Let's go to the bank and I'll write you up a draft and, and see you on your way. We have to understand that this breaks, this crushes the father's heart. This son who has grown up in his family, who he has done everything for and has set him up for as much success as he can, is now telling him he wishes him dead and he wants to go his own way. Think of the emotion behind this. I think the father is wrecked over this. And perhaps there's some parents here or some siblings here who know and you've experienced this because you have gone through it or are going through it where a child or a sibling has completely walked away. 
They want nothing to do with your own family. They want nothing to do with faith, but they want to write their own story. I think you who are in the room who have experienced that are closest to the heart of what this father must be feeling. And understand this, the boy is shaming his father. He's shaming him in front of the community, and it sounds like there is zero remorse for it. So what happens? Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, we're not told here how long that took to take place in Luke 15, but let's put some puzzle pieces together in this. You've got a young man um, who has a lot of desires, and he has the means to, to see those desires met. My guess is it didn't last that long. It's probably a version of younger sons gone wild, maybe a little bit X-rated in there as well, and we're told that basically he squandered his wealth in wild living. And in this wild living, what is the result? One-third of the family estate, one-third of all their wealth that they have had for generations and has been passed on is gone. Every cent of it is gone, never to return to their hands. But notice now here how the story takes a double turn for the worse. Verse 14, after he, the son, had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He noticed the double whammy that is here. It's not just that the sun is broke, but now this famine hits. It's our equivalent of the stock market crashing, a deep recession setting in. And this son, who for at one time had the world as his oyster, now has absolutely no cash and no means of attaining it. There are no jobs just readily available for him. He can't go and earn more cash to continue his wild living. There's nothing left. Which then kind of begs the question for us, if there is nothing left for the son, why doesn't he just go home? For sure, he probably has at least 16 to 20 years of understanding what it's like to live at home, and he was never in need once. And he also has to understand it hasn't been that long since he's been away, so his room probably hasn't been turned into a sewing room or a man cave yet. It's probably still there for him, so why doesn't he just go home and sleep in his own bed? To which I think the answer to that is this. What if we were in his shoes? We've wished our father dead. We've taken a third of the family estate, and we've blown every cent of it. How many of us would go home and say, hi, dad, what's for supper? By the way, dot, dot, dot. I think it's either shame or stubbornness that keeps the son away. Whatever has gone on, he would rather stay away than do anything to try to make it back home. And so that's exactly what he does in verse 15. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He, no longer, or sorry, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You know you've got to hit rock bottom. You know that you're there when you're hired to feed pigs Pigs who were the lowest in society and are untouchable to the Jewish population. They are dirty. You can't touch them. And this is the only job that basically he can get. And you've got to really know, really know 
that you've hit rock bottom, when you are so hungry that you look at what the pigs are eating and you long to eat what they are eating. Take a look at this. How many of you look at that and go, yes, that's exactly what I want for lunch? See the pig? It's hard to see that, but he's got it all over his snout. He's like, he's really enjoying it. He's got some squash in there. But there's a whole lot of mystery stuff in there that we haven't got a clue about. I don't know how you feel when you've missed a meal, maybe even two, and you're like, I'm starving. I think this son was actually beginning to starve. He hadn't eaten for so long. He looked at this and said, yes, this is what I want. And he was still not able to eat it, probably because there's people watching him and he would have been told on. This is rock bottom. It cannot get any worse for him. But it's here, longing for pig slop, that the story takes a hopeful turn. You see, it's like the son has this epiphany. And he goes, I can't do this anymore. In verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said this. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Notice the complete contrast here. That not so long ago, this is the son who wanted his father dead and he left the home who is now doing a 180 and is coming back. There is zero arrogance in this son. Zero ways that he's trying to spin this that it's not a big deal. He understands the big deal that this is. And he's going back to his father in humility because there's nothing else to do. And he knows this is right. And listen to these three, three phrases the son is rehearsing. Let's make sure we hear them. This is his speech that he's getting ready for. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Without a show of hands this morning, how many of you have messed up big time with your parents? You remember a time maybe when you were a teenager or a young adult and you know you've messed up with them? Maybe you have a sibling here that you could definitely put your hand up and say, they have screwed up definitely in front of their parents. Amen. The son has messed up big time. And probably for his long trek home, he rehearses this speech over and over and over again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer the worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and, you. and on and on and on he goes so that he has it ready and it's polished before he gets to his dad. But listen to verse 20. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. He saw him. There is no surprise element here. It's not like it says the son went up and rang the doorbell and caught his dad watching football and interrupted and, you know, there was an experience there. Or that his dad was in the yard talking to neighbors or talking to servants. There is no surprise here. Why? Because the father is seeing his son. Everyone probably in his family and in the village who has shamed the son probably think he's dead and have disowned him. He's a write-off. Except there's one person in this story who has his back still and is longing for him to come home. 
It's the father. He just wants his son back. No matter where he has gone, no matter what pain or guilt or shame that he has caused. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Once again, capture the emotion. Think about the emotion here for a minute. This word filled with compassion for him, it's, this Greek word actually means that he was churned up inside with such emotion. He couldn't believe his eyes that his son, who he'd been waiting for, is standing before him. And this word kissed him, the Greek word for this, is not a once thing, it's a continual thing. So if we read it right, it says, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him and kept kissing him. I told this to my kids, and the first response was, ew, like kept kissing by their dad? But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point, is that we just go, what? This is crazy. You can imagine the shock that the Pharisees who are listening to this whole story They already would have been outraged by the the story to this point. But they're now even more outraged at the response of the father. Can you imagine this? They've got to be saying, Jesus, this isn't the way the story is supposed to go. Because surely the son deserves humiliation, doesn't he? Surely the father deserves compensation for what is lost. And surely, Jesus, the consequences for these actions have to be dire. But no, no. The father runs to his son, puts his arms around him, and kisses him again and again and again. And after all of this hugging and kissing and more hugging and kissing, do you remember the speech that the the son has been preparing for his father? It's almost like he, he has to stop his dad and kind of set him aside for a minute, step back, and go, Father, there's something I need to tell you. And he begins. The son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father receives these words. He hears them. This story, friends, is the gospel. The gospel that Jesus came to bring. Yes, we have turned away from God and made ourselves at center of the story, but we can return home. And so remember the three parts. He starts off with the first one. I have sinned against heaven and against you. How do we come back to the Father? We confess. We confess. This is the story of the gospel. We confess. Notice here, though, that there is no itemizing of sins. It's not like I've sinned against you. Now let me tell you all that I've done. Or a, a ranking of sins from best to worst or worst to best, if there is such a thing. Nothing like that. He just says, I have sinned against heaven, and against you. And then he moves right into the second portion. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He says, I understand what I've done, and there's consequences for this. You see, we realize that our sin has consequences as well. And part of the gospel, it says that we should get what we deserve, right? But that is not the full gospel story. We have sinned. We've fallen short of what God wants for us. We should get what we deserve. But do you notice here that nowhere does it say the last part of the son's speech. Make me like one of your hired servants. What the son is trying to say here is as much as I've royally messed up, let me start on the path to making things right. So I'm not asking for my room back. I'm asking to be a hired servant. In other words, I would get a very small wage, 
Because through that and me doing all the gross jobs on this place, I can start earning my way back into this family. And it's here, it's here that the son probably can't even get those words out because the father interrupts him. Daryl Johnson says this, he says, that interruption is also very much part of the gospel. The father will not hear that last part. We can say it until the cows come home. It is totally irrelevant. God will not try to let us earn our way into his family. Why? Because we are already sons and daughters of the most high king. Amen? Because as we turn to him, we are met with grace instead of shame, with love instead of judgment, and with open arms instead of a hard heart. This is the heart of God the Father. But let us make no mistake, this is not easy for the Father, and it's not like it comes at no cost. Because we can understand the shame and get a glimpse of the shame that this son has caused the Father. For everyone else living in the village, everyone else living in this household, there's now shame brought upon on the Father because of what the son has done. But it's a shame that he gladly takes on for himself. In the gospel, this is how Jesus takes our sin for us. And he takes it and pays the penalty that we should have paid by dying on a Roman cross. A brutal death. So that we can be met with, shame, with grace instead of shame. I better not get that wrong. That would change everything. We are met with grace instead of shame. And listen to what the father says in interrupting the son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And how do they celebrate? Don't miss that there in verse 23. They had a feast and celebrated. Remember at the first part of this here in verses 1 and 2, what were the Pharisees and teachers so angry about? That Jesus not only welcomed sinners in, but he ate with them. This close relationship, you're one of us. And now the father is saying to the son, let's have a feast. Let's eat together. There is so much here and so much within what the father says that points us to our heavenly father. Not one of these words is wasted from Jesus as he shares this. I love this, just even one example. When he says, the father says, to bring the best robe, who owns the best robe? The father does in the family. So when you bring the best robe, you're putting the father's robe on the son, who is smelly and dirty and kind of gross. But in an instant, you don't see the shame and the grossness. You see the royalty and the, and the high esteem of the father's robe. This is not by accident that Jesus is telling this story. The son will not be just a hired servant. He is his son and will be seen that way so that when they look at the son, it's as if they're looking at the father. I'll be honest, um, for years, I've, I've heard this story at various times and I've had to work through my own issues of understanding this proper picture of God the father. I know some of us probably share that, the same story for me You know, I know many of us here have the blessing of having a wonderful earthly father, and that is so good. 
For some of you who know my story, my story isn't that way. And in fact, I've had a father who is completely opposite of that. That my father left my family when I was three years old. And we've had zero contact since. Um, Due to some sleuthing um, over the last little while of uh, Ancestry.com and Facebook, um, me becoming a private detective, I've found out that I have a half-brother. And to be honest, um, I reached out to him to make sure that all the connections were right, and he said, yeah, that's my dad. That's okay, wow, that's your dad. Welcome to the family, in a sense. And he gave me my dad's contact information. He said, here's his email. Email him. Tell him whatever you want. But to be honest, I still haven't done that yet, today. This is just where I'm at, to be honest. I'm still in this process of wanting to do it, never mind doing it. I think part of it is the fact that I don't know what questions I would ask him, or I'm afraid of the answers to the questions that I'll ask him. And so it's so much easier for me right now to be a part. But I will, in the right time, do this, I hope. But I also want to say that while this is part of my story, I have seen the faithfulness of God, my Heavenly Father, in my life, in my story, through father figures that have pointed me to Jesus. I became really good friends with someone in high school when I was going to high school, living in Calgary. And I started hanging out at his house all the time. In a very short time, you know, we were doing stuff probably three, four, five days a week. And I became friends with his family. And his parents were amazing. Um, I always had my mom and sister at home. And there was good meals and obviously family there. But this was almost like a second family to me. They always invited me for meals. They even took me on one of their family trips. And even, get this, they took me to Flames games. I was like, wow, this is the best family ever. (laughs) But one night, um, my friend Brad was doing something in the house, whatever, but I remember his dad, Mr. Kinney, said, can I talk to you for a minute? I was like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Something here. I don't know why I have this trouble complex. But he sat across from me, and he just said to me, he said this. He said, Jeff, we love having you here at the house. And my wife and I just want to let you know, you are like family to us. You are welcome here anytime. I was wrecked. I tried to show a brave face, but I went home and I was wrecked. I can't tell you how much that meant to me, those words. That he gave me worth that I never knew that I had from an earthly father figure. You see, the Pharisees would have been shocked to hear this story. This whole story of Jesus painting this picture of this, son, of this father who was shamed by his son, shamed by the community, who took the shame on himself and yet ran to his son. This points us not to the change in the son's behavior because we don't see what happens next in the son, but rather this points us to the unending, pursuing, unrelenting, grace-filled, empowering, identity-giving, scandalous love of God. And remember what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were so angry at? Once again, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You see, the Pharisees thought they had a right picture of God when they thought that God's holiness excluded, quote-unquote, sinners. But for the first time, they hear from Jesus actually a proper picture of God's heart for people. He welcomes us in 
and he eats with us. And this, friends, this is where the gospel points us. Not to a God who is ready for us to do penance, not to a God who is waiting to hold court to see if our goods will outweigh our bads and accept us at the end of the day or not. Our Heavenly Father is ready to run to us, to throw his arms around us and to kiss us and to keep kissing us. What is the one thing we have to do that this story tells us? What is the one thing? Come home. Come home. As much as, we, as we've gone our own way and wrote our own story, whatever rebellious state we're in, the beauty of this story is that we have left the house, but we can come home. We have a heavenly father who is not ready to judge us or scorn us or condemn us. We have a heavenly father who has already taken that on himself and paid that price. He is ready to run to us. He wants to remove our guilt and our shame and whatever we are feeling. It is not a story of come home and, although as we come home, I'm sure that there are things that we need to work out in relationships, right? But in our standing before God, it says just come home. Our Heavenly Father wants to dine with us again. In the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter three, we get this beautiful picture. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for this story. May we hear it again and and again and again. The love that you have for us and your desire for us to come home. And that it's not about keeping rules, it's not about uh, thinking that we need to keep score to earn holiness, but it's understanding that you run to us as we turn towards home. That you offer us this unrelenting forgiveness and that you want to eat with us. Thank you for this beautiful story and thank you for this beautiful love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, friends, we're going to have people, um, they're either going to be in the prayer room or maybe on the sides. And this is such a great opportunity for us uh, to be able to come beside you and come with you to the throne of Jesus and ask. To say, you know what, maybe you're someone today that has run and has been rebellious and you want to come home and you want to pray with someone and be honest about that. Maybe there's someone in your family that is still away from home and you want to pray that God would put it on them that they would turn to home whatever it might be would you join with someone they would love to pray with you this morning